as the rest of us turn to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Talk about the irrefutable evidence of salvation. And uh, a couple other things as you turn there to note. Uh, you might have noticed I prayed for Norm Yates. And uh, he was here uh, many years ago. A number of you probably know him. Uh, I wasn't, I, I might have seen him, but as immediately when I was coming, when, when he got so uh, unwell. But um, his memorial service will be Wednesday, for those who know him, at Hazley's in Fort Pierce at uh, 5 p.m., I believe it begins. So check with me afterwards, 5 p.m. at, at Hazley's. And uh, the other thing is, I forgot to mention as well, I had so many things written down, is if you're interested in membership, we are going to have another orientation in March, last two Sundays at March, usually uh, we, we've had it before during the Bible Life Group hour. And uh, so see me if you're interested in that. And if you're like, well, I have certain limitations, work schedule, other things that I can't necessarily attend both Sundays, we can work with the individual. I know with Jaden, he missed a Sunday. We met and covered the material. We just want you to be comfortable and, and understand who we are. So that'll be end of March. You can start to see, uh, let Pastor Weiler and myself know as well if you're interested in that. Turning to Jonah chapter 4, I'd like, you to, uh, like to begin just by reading the text. And I'm going to back up one verse to verse 10 of chapter 3. Verse 10 of chapter 3. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? What a question. What a question. You know, as we studied chapter 3, we had, had witnessed just a very stunning change in Nineveh. A stunning change. In fact, the people there completely reversed their moral direction in a matter of probably less than a couple days. Completely reversed it. And you might ask yourself, you know, is that even possible? Is it even possible? And the truth biblically is that yes, that is entirely possible. A spontaneous turnaround is possible. Uh, in the American colonies, there was the first great awakening where there were many great pre preachers, including Jonathan Edwards. And, and there were cities in New England that saw near immediate results. Bars emptied, churches uh, filled back up as they turned from their sins to worship Jesus Christ for sparing them from the penalty of their sins on the cross. So from a human perspective, the, eyes, the view that we have, we will see today that, that salvation is not an invisible phenomenon. It, it, it's not merely an emotional feeling of some type. But rather, we find consistently in the Bible that salvation is actually very observable in people's lives. Very observable. In chapter 3, verse 10, that we just read, it is communicated to us, and this is in human terms, 
It's done so that we can understand what's going on. The, the change in Nineveh was visible. It says, God saw their deeds and that they turned from their wicked ways. And concerning that threatened destruction, it says that he did not do it. Verse 10, it is a parenthetical statement. It's inserted in there by the Holy Spirit, by God. It assists us as a reader in understanding God's actions and Jonah's impending response. That's why it's there. Of course God wasn't sitting aside with his divine fingers crossed, just kind of hoping that he'd see a change. That's not what it's implying at all. Um, that, that is not our God of the universe. It is not the God who grants repentance and salvation. God knew exactly what would happen in Nineveh. Exactly what would happen. He had previously spoken through the prophets that Assyria would be used to judge Israel. In Amos 7.17, God prophesied through Amos saying, Israel will certainly go out of its land and into exile. So the exile was predetermined years before. God wrote every Christian's name in the Lamb's book of life, we are told in Revelation, from before the world. Acts 2.23 indicates Christ was nailed to the cross according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Does it sound like he knows what's going on? Oh yes. And we see in Acts 4.27 in regard to the crucifixion. It tells us that, that both Herod and Pontius Pilate were appointed to do whatever God's hand and whatever God's purpose predestined to occur. The birth in Bethlehem prophesied predestined to occur. God's not caught off surprise. You see the track that I'm taking here? Bible's, uh, the Bible's consistent on that. God is in control throughout this entire book, and God never loses control throughout this entire book. The Bible provides no room for what is known as open theism. Some people call it openness theology. Uh, that suggests that God doesn't actually know everything. God is not omniscient, meaning all-knowing. He's not sovereign in control. They say, they imply, that man is actually sovereign. And God is, at best, reacting to what man does. You hear that a lot today. You hear it in a lot of churches. That God is just reacting to what he sees among men rather than turning the king's heart wherever he wishes. And that false idea distorts isolated passages like this one we're looking at in verse 10. And it makes God out to be less than he actually is and it elevates man to a place that we're not to be. And I will say, this is strong language, but open theism... This idea that God is just simply reacting to what he sees. That it's not just error. That is heresy. God is in control. We are worshiping a God who does not lose control. Prophecy is only possible because God knows all current and future events. 
That word again is omniscient. He knows all. And the overwhelming evidence of, and, and overview of the entire Bible affirms what Job confesses to God in chapter 42, verse 2. He says, you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's the real God that we worship. The real God we serve. Um, not distortions of him. Again, God is sovereign. He's not anxiously waiting to see what we will do so he can respond to us. Uh, When you and I come upon a unique verse, like chapter 3, verse 10, we're not provided a license to just simply come up with some new kind of understanding that no one's ever thought about before, that Augustine and, and the theologians of the past, who probably spent more time in the Scriptures than any of us, something they didn't figure out. Everybody thinks they're so smart today that, that they want to come up with something new. Um, no, that when we come to a unique verse like verse 10, we're not provided that license that visualizes God as less than what He is, the creator of the universe. Instead, we interpret this statement in light of what the Bible consistently says about God. What the Bible has always said about God. You, you interpret in light of that. And then we closely observe, what is this, this verse, this passage, actually trying to communicate to us? What is it trying to tell us? And verse 10 again, it's inserted as a parenthesis to assure us, the reader, that the change in Nineveh was immediately visible that it could be seen, even by God. He saw it. Um, That they genuinely turned from their wickedness. It's an affirmation. And we get that affirmation because it says what? God's not going to destroy them now. So we get this all packaged in this parenthetical insert. God's not going to destroy Nineveh. And if this verse wasn't here... If we didn't have it, it would make it nearly impossible for us to understand why is Jonah responding the way that he is in chapter 4? What in the world is in his head? So, so verse 10 of chapter 3 is there to help us discern before we run into Jonah's response. So, so we've got a little bit of context to what is actually happening in Nineveh and the legitimacy of it. Um, Also, verse 10 is not represented as God speaking additional information to Jonah. It didn't say as it did in the other portions, God spoke to Jonah. No, it's given to us, the reader. Uh, Certainly, by observing the narrative, the 40 days has not yet passed. Certainly, looking at the narrative, we'll know this information wasn't specifically given to Jonah. So, with verse 10, we are, we are then prompted by our inquisitive nature. It's there to prompt us as we enter into chapter 4. Why is Jonah so angry? Why is he so angry? We have some context here beforehand to assist us. And here's the rub. God had not spoken again to Jonah. The 40 days has not yet passed. So we can discern in chapter 4, verse 1, that Jonah is angry because he has also seen the visible change in Nineveh. He's seen it too. He's seen it. Can you fathom that? Nineveh experiences the grace of God, repentance, and the prophet of God gets angry? 
angry? Jonah was, in fact, very angry. Verse 1 indicates that visible repentance of Nineveh that, that occurred to his preaching greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Because his prayer in verse 2, it indicates that Jonah knew repentance and mercy was God's plan from the very beginning. He knew it going in. In verse 2 it says, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. You see, Jonah knew God's plan long beforehand, ahead of time. He essentially here paraphrases Exodus 34 verse 4, and that is when Moses had to, for a second time, get the stone tablets at Mount Sinai. That passage essentially summarizes the character of God. And it does, in fact, record God speaking of Himself. God speaking of Himself, and He says this, Then the Lord passed by in the front of Moses and proclaimed of Himself, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. What a wonderful God. What a wonderful God. But what illuminates to us Jonah's reference to Exodus, his paraphrase of Exodus, what really illumines to us Jonah's situation is that he makes no mention of how that very same passage in Exodus ends. It ends by saying, Yet God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Then it adds, Moses made haste to bow low to the earth and worship. Because of God's greatness. Exodus 34, 4 indicates God's glory is evidenced both by His mercy and by His judgment. His righteous judgment. Something we don't see. Perfectly righteous judgment on the earth today. In the immediate context, had God already levied judgment against different societies, different time periods, against people who had rebelled. Uh, Well, let's just look a little bit earlier. Exodus 32, same scene. Reason that the tablets were, were, were broken by Moses. Many had worshipped the golden calf. Many fell by the sword of the Levites because of God's judgment. God had announced judgment. Yet with Nineveh, Jonah makes no reference to God's judgment. He references only that part of Exodus 34 describing God's compassion, his patience, his loving kindness, because he knew before going to Nineveh that they would be shown mercy. He knew it while he was still back in Israel, he says. He even admits in verse 2 he tried to forestall or interfere 
with God's mercy on Nineveh by fleeing to Tarshish. He's just a little rascal. You know that? Are you a rascal? Are you forestalling what God has shown you to do? Have you ever been given an opportunity for ministry? Some way to serve. Something that fits your skills. Something that fits your time. Something that fits your finances. And you just said, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I know God would like me to do that. I know God would like me to help Tim with some things around the property. I know God would like me to be more generous. And I've got the money. I I know that God would like me to be teaching small children. But you know what? I'm going to forestall all of that. And I'm going to run off to Tarshish. I've done it. I've avoided opportunities for ministry. But just in case you were not here with us back in October when we began this book of Jonah, here's where we find some of the most convincing evidence from Jonah's perspective now that Jonah had heard the preaching of his contemporaries, Amos, probably Hosea, way back in Israel. He had heard them. They had prophesied that Israel would be judged with exile, that Assyria would be the instrument the instrument of God's judgment. We've spoken about that at length previously. So don't get the mistaken idea here that, that, that Jonah is just suggesting that God is always loving, always compassionate, always merciful. He'll never bring judgment upon any nation, any person, any population. Jonah's not suggesting that at all. And that view cannot be reconciled to Scripture at all. God repeatedly levied judgment on nations, including Israel. We see that. And God surely destroyed entire cities. We talked about Sodom and Gomorrah previously. What about Jericho? That's all before Jonah's time. The prophet Jonah was very, very aware of that part of Exodus 34, that God will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Yet he knew it was God's intention to spare Nineveh from the very beginning, way back in his homeland, Israel. Therefore he said, I fled. I fled. This ensures that that, that God is the one who chose to spare Nineveh ahead of time. Ahead of time. God didn't just experience good timing. He didn't just hit the revival lottery. He didn't see a banner hanging outside and said, I better get in there. God was in control the whole time. God's Spirit moved the city to repentance. Acts 11.38 says, It is a gift of God. That fact may disturb some. It also brings great comfort to many Many. Because it provides Christians today, on this Sunday, following a presidential inauguration. It provides us great confidence that the Holy Spirit has the ability to do the same thing again today if He so chooses. The Lord's hand is not short. Yet we call it short. 
He can do however he elects. And if God does, he will receive the glory for it. It's not going to be glory going to uh, mechanisms or schemes or that we employ. It's not going to be due to the eloquence of man and due to slick preachers. That's not how the change is going to come. We just credit the slick preachers. Look how great those preachers are. How about how powerful is the Word of God? That's what will change a country. It's what will change us individually. It's not the schemes of man. Uh, If God, think about this, if God wasn't the impetus of that repentance and revival that we see in Nineveh or elsewhere, if he didn't initiate it, if he didn't control it, if he doesn't do such things, why would you pray to God for him to save people? Why would you do that if he's not in control? If he can't do anything about it? Think about that. But God is in control. Even of the human heart, he'll turn it whatever way he wishes if he so chooses to do so. Jonah realizes that the genuine repentance he sees now in Nineveh itself, it's a gift from God, not a result of his slick preaching. It's a result of God's word, his message being proclaimed. And as we learned three weeks ago, uh, repentance is a symptom of salvation. It's a symptom of salvation. Nineveh's turning from wickedness. That itself is irrefutable evidence that God had spared the culture. Repentance, that change of heart, it's not a root of salvation. Not only a root of salvation. It is a fruit of salvation. You can see it. The change in someone's life. You can see it. James said, faith without works is what? Dead. That's when you can't see it. It means it isn't living. According to the Apostle James, it's non-living. And if you've never seen any change in your life, individually now we're talking, not just a city, if you've never seen that, then you don't have the Holy Spirit living in your life. If you've never seen a change. He told told the woman at the well, out of you will come rivers of living water. That's what the Christian life should look like. He who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. All things are new. That's the spiritual regeneration of the Holy Spirit on the human heart. New creation. Spiritual rebirth. But has Jonah so riled up? He's got good theology. He knows God. That's what's got him mad. He, he knows God has saved Nineveh because he's seen the visible change in Nineveh. Forty days hasn't passed yet. Time hasn't been up. Jonah doesn't have to wait till the end to see what God has done. He's seen it with his own eyes. The change is evidence of God. Irrefutable evidence of salvation. It's right in front of his eyes and it made him angry. Why so angry? Why so angry? Before we explain that, we need to purge out from our theology other so-called evidences of salvation other than a changed life. And they're propagated. We've each propagated them at one time or another, myself included, but nowhere are offered as evidence of salvation in the Bible. 
Like, what are you talking about? We hear them all the time. I hear them all the time. We'll go witness at tradition. We'll hear them all the time. Tell me if I'm wrong. You walk up to a stranger and ask them if they know Christ. How do you know you're saved? Some of the most common responses are like this. Well, you know, well, 10 years ago I was in a church. And, and, and the pastor up front, he gave a really impassioned plea. And he goes, and I, and he goes I, I just ran up to the church when he told me. And then afterwards, he said I was saved. Hmm. Just running up to the front. Um, or possibly it's something like this. I know I'm saved because when I was four years old, my grandma tells me, I don't really remember it, but she told me that I'm saved because I said a prayer. So I know I'm saved because my grandma told me so. You don't see any formula of a sinner's prayer that provides salvation in Scripture. No, nowhere. Um, Or, I got one of these. A completion of a confirmation certificate after going through confirmation. Now you're a member of the church, I was told. I was told that I was saved because I was baptized as a little baby. All these different things that we say are evidences of salvation, but the Bible doesn't necessarily make them evidence of salvation. It doesn't necessarily say they're all horrible. Unless you rely upon them as your one-time evidence of salvation. Now you've got a problem. A one-time event that there was no change in your life. People ask me how I know I'm saved. I have only one biblical answer I can trust in. That is, I know that I am saved because upon hearing the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, this was on the radio, and recognizing my sin, that I'm separated from God, and seeing that there is a solution to that through the blood of Christ as he shed it on the cross, upon Accepting that and believing, confessing Jesus as Lord, believing in my heart, God raised him from the dead, I was saved. Plus, my life changed. My life changed, and it's still changing. A little bit slow sometimes, but it's still changing. I became a new man in Christ. My priorities changed. What was important to me changed. How I spent my money changed. My language changed over time. There was change. There's still some change to go. Trust me. It's not a a complete transformation uh, into perfect sinlessness on day one. But you will see a change. If you're genuinely, genuinely saved, you can look back and say, Christ changed me. I know it. That's visible evidence. You can know that you are saved. You know, Adrian Rogers has one too. Uh, This is one that I never had before being saved. I wanted fellowship with God's people. I didn't even know why. Think of the new members that we had today here come together, want to share about Christ and and share their lives and their giftedness with others. Um, Adrian Rogers, old pastor passed passed away a few years ago, He had evidence of salvation, and one of the ones that he really hangs his hat on is what he called the fellowship test out of 1 John 3.14. And uh, this we know that we've passed out of death and into life if we love the brethren. 
That doesn't mean you won't have a bad day and won't feel like going to church. That doesn't mean that. But a true Christian wants to be around other true Christians. Probably not all the time because we're kind of annoying. But there's a draw by the Holy Spirit to come together into the church and lift Christ's name on high through song, prayer, preaching of the word. We, we assemble of ourselves together. That's an evidence. That's an evidence. I never had that before. A changed life, folks. You can hang your hat on that. Not just a moralized life. A lot of people have strict parameters put on them by their parents or other imprisoning things that say, well, you know, I've just always been a good person. You can also be moralized. That's not the change, the, the change from what I was to what I am now. Um, going forward, as I said, Jonah, he knew God's plan beforehand. It really hit home to him when he saw the change. Oh, no, he said, and his response is to tell God in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better for me than life. Wow, what is going on? I think there's an explanation. I know there's an explanation. Back when he told the sailors to throw him from the ship, Jonah, he was genuinely suicidal. He knew God's plan. He didn't want to be any part of it. Then he, after spending three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, he, he, he then said, salvation's of the Lord. So he took part, but he was never really happy about it, never liked it. Here in verse 3, he truly wants to die because in his mind, he sees that God is now working in Nineveh, soon to become the capital of Assyria. It wasn't quite yet. He's working in Nineveh. According to the prophecies he had heard, this assures the northern kingdom of Israel is done. He knows when he saw the evidence, the northern tribes are done. They are going into Israel. God has changed where he is working. Um... We know looking back at history that the exile, it's not going to occur for a number of years. But Jonah has no idea God's timeline. Think of these things. He only knows that his homeland is under judgment and will be carried off into captivity in Assyria. He knows that. He doesn't know exactly when. And at this point he probably believes he's got no home to return to. I can't go home. Why go back to Galilee and just simply wait for the Assyrians to come? I got no home to go to. The armies are going to come and conquer, according to Amos. And not only that, but what if news gets back to Israel that Jonah was the one who actually took the message? Do you think he's going to be popular? No. No. You risk going back there. In fact, news might even precede you about the great change in Nineveh, the enemy of Israel. Think your neighbors are going to like you? No. No. It's not a good situation for him at all. In a sense, Jonah feels like he's lost his home. He'd rather just die. At this point, he says, For death is better to me than life. He said, It's the end. I'm done. I'm done. 
Looking at the remainder of the chapter, we have two more weeks left in Jonah. I'm going to miss this book. I really am. It's been a huge blessing as they all are. We've got a couple more weeks left. They're going to be very important. Can you identify anything of significance here, significance to God, that Jonah might be overlooking? What about Nineveh? What about the people of Nineveh? Who's going to take care of them? Substantial number have now responded to Jonah's message. A large number. This is a broad revival. Do we have to take it that every single person? No, but at least they all responded. They all viewed their sin. Um, This is a huge change. Who's going to take care of them? Probably next to none of them are very few. Probably weren't any Jews there. So next to none of them uh, understand Yahweh. The, whole, the scriptures, they have no idea what they just responded to or who they responded to, the identity of God, what he can do, what he can't do. That's why we come here and study the scriptures. To grow in, in closeness to God. Um, they just got spared. We might say today saved. Jesus said we're going to see a bunch of them in heaven. Nineveh is going to levy judgment on some others who didn't respond. So there's some there. We don't know exactly how many. Um, But they responded to a simple little message about their sin. Obviously prior to the gospel. You have 40 days and you'll be destroyed. What you're doing? No, no, no. They responded. They responded. They repented. God gave them the gift of repentance. You know, that ought to get us pretty excited. That ought to get us really excited about what we're facing in America. How much do your neighbors, the people we know, have to know to be saved? Do they have to understand everything to be saved? No. No, even, even, even the youngest of children can go to the Bible and understand the gospel and be saved. Do you have to, to go to school, get a doctorate of somehow to know that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead? No. These people don't have a clue. How about your neighbors? Most of them don't have a clue. Does that mean our speaking to them isn't going to prompt them through the Holy Spirit to to accept Jesus Christ? No, we don't have to argue everybody about every fact. Absolutely not. In fact, this ought to provide us the greatest hope of all for America. Change can be that spontaneous at the preaching of the Word of God. It can be that quick. That quick. If we'll simply do what we're supposed to do. That quick, folks. Would you want to be part of something? A change like that? Boy, I would. I got me, if the Lord tarries, I might have 20, 25 years left of health. I don't know. Not a long time. I'd love to see something like that. But our neighbors don't have to know everything. We go out and witness even our feeble inabilities. God will use that. You can be a mother. In fact, you might have an advantage as a young mother. I think of Kara Skinner and Stacy Lauks and Adrian. Boy, they, uh, they have access to people in their normal routine of work. Rita, to talk to people, and they're going to ask, you know, why is it that you have some peace about this? Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ, and they're going to want to know about that Jesus Christ. And you don't have to be a theologian. You do not have to be a theologian. Praise God we don't have to be theologians. God can change hearts. All we've got to do is communicate, convey Christ's greatness and what he did for us. Um, well, pastor, previous church, said he went to an Indian reservation once, and it stuck in my head. Just had the, the oldest, the frailest old lady sitting under a lean-to on a reservation. He said he could tell right away in her eyes as he was brought up and introduced as a pastor that, that she was a Christian. She didn't have any teeth, from what I remember of his story. He walked up, was introduced uh, to her as a Christian on the reservation. Difficult life, difficult situation. And her profession of the gospel is this. He, he said, do you understand the gospel? And her response was, in some words, uh, almost exactly this, I believe, if I remember right. It's been years ago. She said, He no die, I die. But he die, I no die. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God. Praise God. And a, a writer of a, of a commentary I have, a really good one on the Minor Prophets, uh, or the editor of that, Thomas... Mikomiski, I think his name is, he wrote it this way, the hope of those with only the sketchiest theology is not misplaced. God is ready to relent from sending calamity. Amen? The people of Nineveh have been quick to acknowledge their guilt and to stake their hope on God's mercy. That's what we want to see. That's what we have hope in because God can do it. Jonah was unwilling but God turned Nineveh around by a brief message that quick. That's what can happen with the power of God. You and I have been in large part unwilling, in large part unwilling to be his instruments. But how quickly might God be willing to change our country if we just change our attitude? Oh, things that might happen in our lifetime. We get our priorities back to his. The solution isn't that complicated. We resist. We resist. Rita and I were driving around yesterday afternoon. We went down to uh, Boynton Beach area. There's a restaurant down there we like. We do that from time to time. And uh, on the way back, we kind of gerrymandered over towards uh, Jupiter Inlet and other things to look around on a Saturday. I got home. I said, ain't nothing I haven't seen before. Is it really that important? No, I'm not down at all about enjoying a, a day of relaxation. It was relaxing. I said to myself, this is not it. This is not why I'm here. There are people who are dying. Um, I'm all for relaxation, but life is not about relaxation. The ultimate reason uh, that Jonah is so angry is he's mad because he, he didn't get to decide. Jonah would have chosen to spare his own nation, Israel. That's what he wanted. Instead, God chose those deplorables. Nineveh. Jonah doesn't like the fact that he doesn't have control. He doesn't like it. He doesn't want to do anything, anything to do with people who are not like himself. 
God's covenant nation was supposed to be Israel. Now Jonah is forced to use covenant language originally offered to Israel to now describe God's new relationship with Nineveh, a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, has arrived in Nineveh. He's got to say that. That had to hurt. Those words were intended for Israel. But those people could probably use some guidance. They could probably use some discipleship. And we, we look at Jonah, you know, we think to ourselves, well, how much more dense can you be, Jonah? You have a ministry opportunity with thousands of people. Ministry opportunity of a lifetime in front of you. Can't you just overlook a few things, huh? They dress a little different. They, they eat some strange things, I'm sure. They look different. You know, they probably have piercings in areas that, that we don't like. They're different from us. They're going to take some time. They have rough edges. They surely are going to ask some stupid questions. But Jonah, do you care? Do you care about these people that are around you? About this city? Obviously, Jonah isn't thinking right, but he probably has a better excuse than we. We know that Jesus Christ went to those type of people. We know we have been called to go to those people who are not like us. We are called to remember we were not always like we are. We did some really nasty things before we became Christians. Yet he saved us by the washing and renewing of the Holy Spirit. God brought a change. How often do we sit on the sidelines? How often do we look away, skip ministry opportunities just because it wasn't exactly the fit I was looking for? I think that's what Jonah was saying. And I really wasn't the fit. You know, if you see my resume, that isn't really where I was thinking about going. He didn't want to participate. People complain they, have, uh, they don't have a place to serve. Well, we've got places to serve right here. If you know anybody looking for a place to serve, we've got them. That'll be a major pa- uh, part of our passage next week. We have just a few things, and we're going to go home. A few points here. Number one, there must be a messenger. God has ordained that sinners will not be redeemed apart from God's word. He's decided that. So there must be a messenger. According to 1 Peter 3, we take it with an attitude of humility, gentleness, patience, uh, reverence. He sent us out to be his witnesses, to be good witnesses, not to hurl insults. We're seeing way too much of that today. Do you think, does anybody really listen to that? I don't think, first time. But we see that doesn't work, right? Whether you're talking politics or whether you're talking religion, it doesn't work. You've got to be able to reason with people. Have a reasonable explanation. Um, We need to be a messenger. Uh, Number two, don't get angry. We don't get to choose. We witness to everybody. Everybody. We scatter seed. We scatter water. Some get really frustrated because they can't force other people to believe. No, you can't. You're not God. You don't get to choose. We can't. We are witnesses. We pray for them. Salvation, faith, through salvation, according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, is God's gift. He gives the gift. 
Just be faithful in your duties. Devote yourself to pray to God because he's in control. We can pray to him because he can do something about our situation and about other situation. He can turn hearts. Number three, uh, be ready. Ministry is a lonely place. Jonah was lonely. Anticipate it. You know, notice how many times in verse 2 Jonah says, I, 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 I fled. I wanted to forestall this. Isn't this what I said? (laughs) Boy, that's pretty bad when you think about it. I, I, I. Jonah's got to get the focus off of himself and get the focus on those around him. That's what we'll be talking about in the next couple weeks. And, uh, yeah, ministry can get lonely. I've seen a lot of guys in ministry that are out there all by themselves. They just love serving the Lord. They're full of the Holy Spirit. Ministry is about getting the job done with what you have. My old pastor said, do the simple things well. Um, it's not, you don't become a celebrity through it. Nobody becomes a celebrity. Number three, even the sec- sketchiest theology provides hope. You don't have to be a theologian. Take the message. Number four, ministry takes time, effort, and it's messy. It's messy. Lots of people that are messy. Not just us. Everyone out there too. Messy. But God will change lives. Jonah has seen the change. He has the opportunity of a lifetime so badly wants judgment on those who don't act and think like him. We aren't going to get anywhere with that attitude. We need to uh, be good witnesses. Um, Next week, he's going to head for the sidelines. We're going to look at that. And the following week after that, God's going to talk about compassion for mankind. It'll be a good time. It'll be a good time.